When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year, on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So head over to patreon.com. Get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. Who is John Taylor of Caroline, and why should we pay attention to him? I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Well, let's talk about John Taylor of Caroline. Now, if you're new to the show, you may not recognize that name. If you've listened to the show for any amount of time, I've talked about him before. And I like to do these shows uh, periodically where I talk about some of the important figures in American history that you may not know much about, but that are essential for understanding American conservatism or libertarianism or whatever your position certainly is on the right. Now, even on the left, there are people like John Taylor of Caroline. In fact, there are people on the left that like this Southern agrarian tradition because it does speak to an anti-corporate, anti-banking segment of the American left. It's the Jeffersonian strain of that. Now, those people on the left have decided to use the vehicle of government to regulate these things, whereas Taylor of Caroline and the other Jeffersonians would be completely against that. But certainly that distrust of corporations, that distrust of large banks, or suspicion of these things, is an American type of position. And so it's fun to talk about these old Southern conservatives, and Taylor of Caroline certainly was a conservative. Um, he, in fact, is the one, I've, I've used this quote before, who said, you know, America for Americans is like utopia for utopians. It doesn't exist. There is no America for Americans. There isn't an American people, in other words. He wasn't uh, in favor of this idea of a single unified American people. And he's writing that in the early 19th century when America was much more homogenous than it is today. But he recognized that there were differences between the North and the South, between the culture of the North and the South, particularly of New England and uh, the South. In fact, between Massachusetts and Virginia. I mean, they were two different states with two different cultures. So we had this federal republic designed to operate for the collective good of the whole in terms of foreign policy and 
perhaps for trade, foreign trade. I mean, that's the important thing. But then everything else was left to the states. That was how the Constitution was sold to the states, and it's how Taylor and the other Jeffersonians wanted to ensure that the central government operated. On the other side of that, you had the great innovators. You had those that were interested in centralization, nationalization. These people eventually became ascendant after the war in 1865, and they, they started using terms like democracy and nationalism, equating those with progress. I've got a whole new class coming out on that in just a couple of weeks, American progressivism. But you can see how the collective became much more important because to these people, the collective good which would benefit their section and their economic interests was better than having a federal republic. And of course, any kind of reform in their mind would necessitate some type of central organization or collective interest. So you have these these two combating visions of what America would be. Would it be a federal republic, a, a real federation of states, or would it be a centralized government? And Lincoln, of course, called it a government. This is what he said it was. And the United States is a government. And so it wasn't a union. It wasn't a union of states. It's a government. Now, Taylor is going to combat these things even in his own time because you have people like Joseph Story writing a bunch of nonsense and John Adams writing nonsense about the American constitutions. And and Taylor was concerned about this. He thought that uh, this nationalist push was going to undermine what the founding generation ratified in 1788. He thought it was dangerous for the stability of the republic and federal republic, and so it needed to be addressed. And this is why I find Taylor so fascinating, and why you should too. And, and, uh, and, and there's a piece at Chronicles w- written by uh, Bill Watkins, who's a great legal scholar. Um, in fact, uh, there will be a webinar, and I haven't announced it yet for the Inst- Abbeville Institute, but a webinar in March on the 14th Amendment that's going to involve uh, Professor Watkins. And so I'm really excited about that. It's going to be a great time, but um, be on the lookout for that. Um, and he is a very good uh, scholar on this early Virginia legal tradition. And Taylor, of course, was part of that. So he published this piece in Chronicles magazine. Uh, and the title is Remembering John Taylor of Caroline. Why do we need to remember? Now, history is the remembered past. This is what I find. I've, I've said it before. When people run around saying, we need to start a, uh, you know, a, uh, memory studies. Right. We're going we're to study the history of memory. Well, it's, that's history. I mean, history is the remembered past. So we're going we're gonna to do the history of history. <laughs> How to remember things. This is just stupid. Memory studies is the exact thing that history is, right? So uh, it's just fascinating to me how the historical profession is completely dead. They don't even know what history is anymore, which is why we have a whole uh, subsection of memory studies. How we choose to remember the past. Let's study the let's study the history of how we choose to to do history. Well, for a long time we called that historiography. <laughs> now we call it memory studies. You see, it, but it's a whole new field. It's a whole new field. Uh, and when people are so detached from what history actually is, they think this is something new. Anyways, so let's uh, let's talk about John Taylor of Caroline, uh, prophet of encroaching tyranny. John Taylor of Caroline was a man of the American Revolution. During the fight for independence, he served in the Continental Army and Virginia Militia. He left the latter at the end of the war with the rank of lieutenant colonel. 
Military life molded his character as it did for so many other men, but the enduring influence on Taylor was not the campaigns of the Continental Army. It was the spirit of 1776 which gave the revolution form and substance. The 13 colonies, Taylor realized, were pre-existing political communities that owed no allegiance to a foreign government. Virginia, Massachusetts, and the other states had the same claim to govern their own affairs as did England or France. Self-government was the North Star of the Revolution and remained Taylor's political polaris throughout his life. That's a beautiful first paragraph because that summarizes every reason why you need to know who John Taylor of Caroline was. He was a firm believer that Virginia and the other states were independent political communities that could govern themselves. For some things, collective action was better. Now, I will say this about Taylor. He was concerned about one section or one state dominating the center. In fact, he said it as much. I mean, he, he wanted to ensure that a real union was maintained where all, this is what Calhoun later said, all were benefited and burdened equally by the association. He wasn't interested in a sectional government. In fact, he would throw a bone to the North when he needed to. He wanted to have a real union. And I think that's what separates Southerners from Northerners because in their concept of what the nation or the union really was. It was a fraternal league for the good of the whole. The general welfare really meant something to them. And uh, their spirit of union was a true national organization. What's good for the whole, even though Taylor wasn't a nationalist with one people, but what's good for the whole is important. Whereas New England disguised their sectionalism behind nationalism. They were doing what was good for New England under the auspices of nationalism. It was the exact opposite. So oftentimes the South is seen as the area that was only interested in its own sectional interest, whereas New England was just doing things out of its own spirit of national national good and good for all and good for the whole, which is the exact opposite. The nationalists in the the 18th and early 19th century were not nationalists. They were sectionalists coming out of the North who were insisting on policies and programs that would benefit their section only. Now, Henry Clay would say that's not true, but it was true. Taylor was born in 1753 in Caroline County, Virginia. His father died in 1758. His mother sent young John to live with his uncle, Edmund Pendleton a lawyer who would become a leading figure in Virginia politics and eventually serve as president of the state's court of appeals. Pendleton and the boy bonded because Pendleton had lost his own father before his birth and had been raised by a kind-hearted planter as his apprentice. Remembering the grace that had been shown to him, Pendleton ensured that Taylor received a good education at boarding school at the College of William and Mary. After college, Taylor studied law at Pendleton's office and was admitted to the bar in 1774. The war interrupted Taylor's practice, but after the end of the hostilities, he excelled in the legal profession. The practice of law was profitable for Taylor and allowed him to earn substantial fees, which he used to purchase land. Agriculture became his passion, and he left the practice of law as soon as possible. Throughout his life as a planter, Taylor experimented with scientific farming. He shared his knowledge with others through his book, Eritur, Latin for Plowman, and welcomed visits from farmers seeking to learn how to restore depleted soil. Taylor's genius was not limited to agricultural pursuits, but appeared also in his study of republicanism and constitutional structures. Now, this might be, in some ways, Taylor's most lasting legacy in the issue of scientific farming. Taylor was certainly concerned about wearing out the soil in Virginia, and he wanted to ensure 
that others learned how to do better for farming. And this this uh, field of scientific farming became something Taylor was really focused on. And you had these agricultural societies pop up throughout the South, and Taylor was certainly part of that process. How do we farm better? Taylor, in many ways, is one of the American fathers of you know, modern agriculture and how we think about it, you know, modern, large-scale agriculture, and the way to do it profitably and also effectively and scientifically so that you can get the most bang for your buck. Taylor was very good at that. Um, so I think that's one thing that people miss about John Taylor Carroll. Now, that book, Eritor, it also has political stuff in it, too. It's fantastic. Some of his best little quips are in Eritor. Um, it's, it's a fun book in certain sections because he does get into what happens with farmers and government, in which it's really, it's really funny. During the ratification controversy, Taylor opposed the Constitution of 1787 and instead preferred a, revise, a revision of the Articles of Confederation. A pure confederal system, in Taylor's view, best supported the idea of local self-government that was at the core of the revolution. Right? This is think locally, act locally. That's why Taylor is so good. The issue of ratification placed him in Pendleton in different political camps, however. Taylor did not actively participate in the ratification battles of 1787-88 because his law practice demanded his full attention. So, Edmund Pendleton was for ratification. This is true. Pendleton favored ratification. Uh, John Taylor of Caroline did not. Um, and, But Pendleton eventually came around to a position of, oops, I think we made a mistake in ratifying this Constitution. He actually circled back to Taylor's position later in life, when he was an old man in his 80s. In 1783, out of respect for his Republican principles, the Virginia legislature appointed him to the United States Senate. From this vantage point, Taylor observed a push by Alexander Hamilton and his allies to establish a central government, a strong central government. This was incongruent with the promises made by the Constitution that the new government's powers would be few and defined and would apply mostly to foreign affairs and foreign commerce. The efforts by Taylor and other Southerners to oppose Hamiltonian measures and their retaliation against British insults to American commerce created a split with Northerners thus threat that threatened to dissolve the nascent nation. Now, what's really interesting about this, 1793, Hamilton's system is already, I mean, but put into effect in many ways. I mean, look, 1791, 1789 is really the day that a lot of this died when Hamilton was appointed as Secretary of the Treasury, but 1791, a lot of it's already there. Taylor comes into the Senate. He's there for a very, very brief amount of time. Hamilton was almost out at that point. I mean, he didn't, he didn't stay, stick around much longer after that, but Certainly, the Federalists were pushing a nationalist agenda. And if you read the debates, you have people like Fisher Ames, who's also a conservative. I mean, Fisher Ames was certainly concerned about democracy and other things. But Fisher Ames was a nationalist, and Fisher Ames was a New Englander, and Fisher Ames wanted a New England-dominated United States. Fisher Ames was also a secessionist at one point. And so were many other New Englanders when they thought that the blocks, the roadblocks that Southerners kept putting in the way of their nationalist agenda, in other words, their sectionalist agenda, were going to threaten New England security. And so that's where Watkins brings up this event with, between Taylor and a couple of important Northerners. Massachusetts Senator Rufus King and Connecticut, Sen Connecticut Senator Oliver Ellsworth approached Taylor to discuss dissolving the Union. 
New England depended on Great Britain for credit and commerce, and the Southerners' pro-French foreign policy in the early 1790s and insistence on a small-scale general government vexed the New Englanders. King and Ellsworth believed that the interests of the two sections were diametrically opposed and that peaceful dissolution would be the, in the best interests of both parties. What's fascinating about this is both King and Ellsworth were active participants in the entire process of the Constitution. And so these men were intimately con- understood secession was legal. <laughs> hey, look, why don't we just dissolve the Union right now? Why don't we just say, look, New England's out. And we'll leave, and you can have it. And Taylor was shocked. He said, wait, 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 this thing's only four years old. It's only four years old. They're approaching him in 1793 about this. And they understood Taylor was someone who wasn't really interested in the Constitution either. So this is why they approached Taylor. And he writes back, I, I, don't, I don't understand. I mean, we've only had this thing four years. These people already want out. But it shows you. It shows you that, first of all, secession was certainly considered by the founding generation as possible, legal, not even a, not even a question of legality. It wasn't treason. You just leave. That's a Lincolnian construction of the Union. The founding construction was the complete opposite. That's why this particular exchange is so important for understanding American history. And, of course, New Englanders post-secession quite a lot. They did it several times. Taylor left the conversation convinced that New England Federalists cared more about their mercantile wealth than the republicanism of the Revolution. The encounter also cemented his view that the Federalists, to borrow terms from British political discourse, were a court party, ever seeking to expand the ambit of the new government, while Republicans were a country party, ever on guard against the slightest hint of corruption or usurpation of power. Certainly there was something to this. In fact, this is the Bernard Balin position, the soft interpretation of the American War for Independence. You had the court and country situation. It wasn't really hard, which the hard interpretation would be sound, money, you know, these kind of things, but more of an ideological disposition. You have the court and the country. And there was certainly something to that. Without question, there was certainly something to that. After a short stint in the U.S. Senate, the citizens of Caroline County elected Taylor to the Virginia House of Delegates in 1796. In these years, tensions between Jeffersonian Republicans and Federalists increased during the crisis of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Prompted by the Quasi-War with France, the Acts broadly interpreted the Constitution in order to vest President John Adams with dictatorial powers over aliens and to make criticism of the federal government a crime. Previous efforts to expand federal power appeared mild compared to the alien and sedition laws. And that's true. Now, these things were shocking. It's hard for us to understand in 2024 when the general government passes so much stupid legislation and so many things that are encroachment upon civil liberty that this would have been as shocking. But this was, people recoiled at this. In fact, so violently in terms of their internal shock at it, they nullified them. They, they said, look, this is it. We're going to raise militias to ensure that these things are not enforced in our state. That's how violently they resisted these, this encroachment on civil liberties and the Tenth Amendment, you see. As Jefferson and Madison prepared their Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798, and contemplated how to achieve success in the 1800 election, Taylor favored a structural change in the Constitution. Protests and a rotation of elected officials could accomplish only so much. Taylor believed that the states should have an explicit right to expound the Constitution. 
Thus, in the case of the Sedition Act, Virginia could declare such a blatant violation of the First Amendment unconstitutional and prevent enforcement in its territory. Taylor was a mover of Madison's Virginia resolutions that advocated interposition, but Taylor believed that more substantial efforts were necessary. He thought Madison was too soft. There needed to be an explicit position, amendment, whatever it took, to say that states could nullify federal laws in their own territory. Now, people like Nathaniel Macon thought this was odd, because if you're going to do that, then just secede. I mean, that was his point. Macon even said it. I mean, look, if we're going to nullify, just get out. I mean, there's no point in being in the Union anymore. But what all these people hope to do is by perhaps nullifying a law in Virginia, not enforcing it there, it would call into question the law for the rest of the Union as well. And maybe some revision would be made. That was Calhoun's position ultimately with the concurrent majority or his position on nullification. Nullifying in one would then force other states to reconsider the law on the rest. And therefore you would get a better law. This put Taylor on the far edge of the Republicans, the old Republicans, as they're called. It's a great group of old conservatives. Unfortunately, I'm doing a live class as I'm recording this right now, and uh, you've missed out on that. But perhaps in the future, I'll offer it again and you can take it, because this is really good stuff. After Jefferson's election of the presidency in the so-called Revolution of 1800, Taylor continued to demand constitutional change. Indeed, his mentor, Pendleton, agreed with Taylor about fundamental alterations and wrote an essay for the Richmond Examiner entitled Danger Not Over. In essence, Pendleton, undoubtedly after close consultation with Taylor, urged Republicans not to be content with one of their own occupying the White House. He called for a clear definition of the spheres of federal and state governments and warned about moneyed interests seeking bounties for their advancement at the expense of the people in the states. It's a great essay. Uh, the danger, I mentioned it earlier in this podcast, Danger Not Over. It's a great essay and one that um, should be read. Uh, so uh, I'm covering it in that old Republicans class. It's part of the curriculum there, but um, it's one you really should go out and, and find and read. During the first Jefferson administration, Taylor filled an unexpired Senate term in 1803, except for a short term to the Senate in 1822. Taylor eschewed holding office and focus on his plantation, Hazelwood, and political writings. It is these writings that have had lasting impact. In his book, Construction Construed and Constitutions Vindicated, Taylor masterfully diagnosed the ills of the American political system. This is 1820. Taylor argued that the constitutional difficulties facing the people in the states resulted from the reemergence of a European view that government possessed absolute sovereignty. Taylor pointed to the American Revolution and averred that the Divine sovereignty claimed by governments of every form was completely exploded or reclaimed by the people of the several states. A principal-agent relationship was established where the people occupied the superior position of a principal and government acted as an accountable agent. So this is government from the bottom up. The people are the principals, the government's the agent. In this way, you think of what, I mean, Lincoln flipped that on its head. The government was the agent, the, and, and uh, the government was the principal, the people were the agent. This is how Lincoln said it. It was a government, and opposition to the government was treason, whereas Taylor would say, no, no, no. Opposition from the government to the people is treason. Popular sovereignty for Taylor was the primary principle of our whole political system, which our governments both feel and profess. 
Popular sovereignty author birthed the idea of the people delegating a limited and defined set of powers to government. Only a principal can engage an agent and set boundaries for the agent's actions. Again, think about what Lincoln did. We have a government. He's setting boundaries for what everything else could do. The, the principles could do. That's flipping the entire union on its head. Taylor was right in how people conceptualize of the government in the 18th century. Lincoln flipped that on his head. It, it's, it's completely a distortion of what the American founding was about. This is why Taylor is so important for understanding American conservatism. Because if he's right, then Lincoln is wrong, and the entire West Coast Stroudsian position falls down like a house of cards. And same thing with all the national conservatives. It just falls apart. They're just progressives. In the context of the federal government, Taylor challenged those who claimed that the amalgamated people of the United States had created the Constitution of 1787. The American people had created the Constitution, Taylor mused. Then why did statesmen refer to the Constitution as forming a union? The term union, Taylor explained, has never been applied to describe a government established by the consent of individuals, nor do any of our state constitutions use it in that sense. The American Union, Taylor wrote, was the act of distinct bodies politic, composed of the people within different geographical boundaries, and not a number of people, encircled by one line without any such discrimination. The locus of ultimate power was critical to Taylor because it impacted the right of construction. Now, this is important. He points out a very essential part of understanding American constitutionalism. States don't say, and their constitutions, we're forming a union of people. Because this is one of the arguments that's often used. In order to form a more perfect union, people will say, union of what? Well, a union of the American people. Nobody used that language in the 18th century. It's a union of political bodies. States. That's what it was a union of. Not people, but union. A union of states. So when people, well, we have a union of people. Nobody used that language. In the states, they didn't say, we're forming a union of people for the state of Virginia. No. <laughs> Nobody did that. You only use the term union when you're talking about sovereign political entities. Taylor denied that the executive, legislative, or judicial departments of the state and federal governments have ever consented to the union. And therefore, no one of these departments can have an exclusive right of construing the Constitution. See, see, all these departments never consented to the Union. They're just created by the Union, by the Constitution. The Union of the states created these things. So, therefore, they can't decide what the Constitution means. The people of the states, however, in separate conventions did consent and thus possessed ultimate authority to interpret it. The obvious implication of Taylor's logic was that the Supreme Court, as a branch of the federal government and not a party to the Constitutional Compact, could not be the final arbiter of the Constitution. It's perfect logic. But of course, this is radical in the modern day, that the Supreme Court doesn't actually have the final say on anything. It would be the people of the states. It would be nullification. It would be secession. Of course, Taylor believed that the court did have a role in interpreting the Constitution. That role was limited to cases or controversies between individuals. In claiming the authority to settle jurisdictional disputes between the federal and state governments, the court usurped the place of the people of the several states. Well, we're going to talk about that next week because as I recorded this, I didn't have time to put this together and I already had set this in motion for this week. But we'll talk about this Texas issue with the general government and immigration and what's going on there because there's a very Taylor-esque solution to this and it's Texas telling the general government to take a hike. 
because the Supreme Court really has no jurisdiction here. Not between the federal government. The Supreme Court has jurisdiction between states, right? Of two states. But we're talking about the federal government and the states. It's totally different. Taylor observed that the Philadelphia Convention rejected a congressional veto over state legislation, and therefore it would make no sense to claim that the framers silently revived such a power for the judicial branch. In making claims of judicial supremacy, Taylor believed that Chief Justice John Marshall attempted to revive the role of the British Parliament and vest a branch of government with ultimate sovereignty. He was right about that, what John Marshall was doing. In his book Tyranny on Mass, Taylor focused upon a dangerous trend in American politics. By our political theory, Taylor wrote, the people are supposed to be the patrons of the government and not the government the patron of the people. When patron status becomes reversed, an actual tyranny arises as government prescribes constitutional regulations of the people and uses their property and donations to individuals or combinations. <laughs> Perfectly true. In fact, at one point he said that taxes reduce people to the condition of asses. This is what he said. You're just a donkey, just a servant to something else. That was an error. At the heart of constitutional controversies, Taylor believed was a thirst for power to enact legislation for the purpose of transferring property from the people to patronize individuals or combinations. This is the paper jobbers. This is, this is corporations. This is banks. This is whatever it is. You're going to tax people to transfer wealth to something else. Patronized individuals or combinations. Could be the poor. Could be the rich. Could be this group or that group. But that's what you're doing by taking taxes. Such was the motivation for the Bank of the United States. Internal improvement legislation and protective tariffs. Loose construction, therefore, was but a tool for extending government power for enriching the favored few. Taylor invaded against capitalists, but did not use the term in the modern Marxist sense. Taylor had no problem with private ownership of agricultural and manufacturing means of production. The capitalist was to Taylor a man focused solely on personal profit at the expense of his fellow citizen. Think of our modern globalist elite who are happy to outsource good-paying manufacturing jobs while their countrymen suffer unemployment or flip burgers for minimum wage. He had no ill will for the New England factory owner, but objected to the idea that Southern consumers should pay a tax on European manufactured goods to boost the New Englanders' bottom line. Right. Taylor wasn't against manufacturing. He was against state capitalism, artificial capitalism, and against profit for profit's sake. He was against that, too. Just to make money, you abuse people. There was a community interest as well. And that's where, again, some people like Taylor, who are on the left. Economic concerns aside, Taylor opposed measures such as the protective tariff because it undermined the equality of the states. Some states were enriched by it and others impoverished. The union was supposed to be an equal partnership. Measures that transferred wealth from one state to another were disastrous, were destructive to the common ground of the constitutional compact. The Missouri question arose in the final years of Taylor's life. He lamented the divisions developing over an issue that was de definitively deposed, disposed by, of by the federal compact. Taylor viewed slavery as a matter left to the internal self-government of the states and appeared that it was a fraud to open it again. He was not surprised that those injecting turmoil into national politics were also the same persons who supported a national bank protective tariffs, a federal pension list, and other endeavors outside of Congress's enumerated powers. You see, this was... The point, why did these people do it? Why did New Englanders start to agitate on the question? They said it 
because they wanted to find a break with the West and the South. The only way to break this unholy alliance in their mind between farmers of the West and farmers of the South was to bring up the slavery issue. And so Taylor was looking at it saying, you're only bringing this up because you want your tariffs and you want your internal improvements and you want your banks. And if you can get a political alliance with the West, you can get those things. That's why you're bringing this up. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't care about it. If you can make money on it, you would do it. And it's true. People that did this were interested in these things. Now, they might have had convictions of being anti-slavery. They may not have liked it. But on the other hand, they did it for political reasons as well. Taylor accused the agitators who had resurrected the issue of slavery of establishing two great combinations of states, resulting in the baleful idea of a geographic, geographical balance of power. The result, Taylor feared, would menace the peace and happiness of the Union. He expected division between the sections to grow and the slaveholding states to resort to a natural right of self-defense to halt interference with domestic institutions. Along with Jefferson, he heard the fire bell in the night and would not have been surprised by the events that led to the Civil War. Well, he was right about it. And this was Jefferson's position. Like the fire bell in the night was the, was the threat to the Union. It wasn't slavery. It was the threat to the Union. That's what they feared. Taylor's final book, New Views of the Constitution, he pleaded with Americans to realize that the happiness and prosperity of the United States will be greater under a federal than a national government. Forces favoring consolidation had interpreted the Constitution in a reckless manner to achieve certain policy results. In effect, they treated the federal government as the sole heir of the states, as the concentrated power of America, and as a political almighty. Too often, restrictions are converted to enlargement and exceptions into a general rule. Constitution, Taylor revered, should be interpreted as a federal instrument and not a consolidated instrument. And that's true. Taylor's books are excellent. Now, they're written in a language that can be a wordy at times. People can, can have a hard time getting through them. Sometimes you feel like you have to slog through them, but they really are witty once you figure out how Taylor writes. And th logically, they're sound. There's not many other people in American political philosophy that match John Taylor. He's been ignored because he's a disruption to the entire establishment system. If you could examine our modern government, Taylor would conclude that we had abandoned the principles of the American Revolution and mimicked the British model in which ultimate sovereignty rests in Parliament. He would declare our government a tyranny because it dictates fundamental law and distributes vast amounts of wealth to favorite industries and classes. But he also point us to a way back, a federal system which the federal government undertakes few and defined matters, and the several states are left to govern their internal affairs. In other words, Taylor would go back to real federalism. That's true. He would also favor, I think, nullification or any other method that would bring that about. All right. See you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. Did Abraham Lincoln screw up America? Absolutely. So did a litany of other presidents, and I've got all of them in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. It's one of my favorite books that I've written. You're really going to love it. And you might even be shocked about who I include in those nine presidents, including Abraham Lincoln.
Pick it up wherever books are sold online. I guarantee you'll love it.